Welcome to Common Voice, the podcast of the College of Public Health of Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay, welcome to our inaugural podcast of Common Talk. I am your host, Jamie Riley. I'm a professor in Communication Sciences and Disorders at Temple University in the College of Public Health. I have the pleasure today of interviewing Associate Dean David Sarwer, who is Associate Dean of the College of Public Health. He's a professor in Social Behavioral Sciences and also is, directs the Center for Obesity Research and Education at Temple University. David, welcome. Thanks, Jamie. It's great to be with you. May I be so bold as to call you David? Will you, or do you prefer Sire? I mean, you know, no, no, <laughs> you know, Sire would be good, especially in public. But no, I think for these purposes, David is fine because that's what you call me when uh, we see each other in the hallways. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. So let's let's just get right to it. Um, so I I um, for for our listeners, I we David and I have a little bit different backgrounds. I'm a, a speech language pathologist. I focus on Alzheimer's disease, and I frankly don't know a whole lot about you know uh, about public health, which is ironic because I'm running this podcast on on public health, and, it, and maybe that's why. Uh, maybe I'm here that we can all learn something. Uh, but David is uh, has has uh, a little bit more expertise in looking at you know systems related to public health, and his background is and training is as a clinical psychologist. So let me let me stop yapping and tell us a little about yourself. So uh, so Jamie, you know it's it's interesting you taught you frame it in the context of me and public health, and clearly you know my work in obesity is is one of the most significant public health issues that we face right now as a country. You know, separate the, to the the COVID pandemic. Um, but, but, you know, as a clinical psychologist, I spent much of the early part of my career in a medical school setting where mm -hmm. I was focused much more on the clinical care of an individual patient or small groups of patients. And, um, it's really only been since I joined the college back in 2015, that being in a college of public health has kind of altered my perspective. And it's been actually a, a phenomenal, uh, change in my view and, and really, I think re-energized my career uh, and my research in some ways, because it, it, it forced me to, to realize that it's not just obesity at the individual level, at the group level, but to really, really look at the problem of obesity as a public health issue at the community level, at the city level, at the state level, at the country level. And, and then also, I think you would agree, you know, one of the wonderful things about our college is just the, the incredibly broad tent of professions that we have. You know, mm -hmm. there aren't too many colleges of public health that have a department like yours included. We're, we're one of the few colleges of public health that includes social work and nursing. And so when you think about the opportunities for multidisciplinary collaboration in those spaces, I mean, that, that's one of the things that really excites me about my role at the college level uh, as an associate dean, but, but also just being a faculty member in this environment. Because you know, to, to learn from all of you, to hear about the exciting work that you all do, it is literally one of one of my the favorite parts of my job. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. One thing I was curious about when you were talking about that is, you know, when you uh, you know both of us are have our clinical background are still licensed as clinicians. I'm a speech pathologist. You're a clinical psychologist. In in seeing patients indirectly, um, how how is this how is this change how's that focus changed your perspective right? And so this idea of integrating systems. 
Yeah, so, so what's been very interesting, mental health professionals for a long time have been talking about the promise of telehealth mm-hmm. and that and the idea that we could deliver a good amount of our care via Zoom platforms and even over the telephone um, using also supplemental technology like self-monitoring, you know, the things that we do on our smartphones or if we're wearing a Fitbit. And I think that, that the, the kind of the shutdown really forced uh, adaptation of those methods much more quickly than any of us ever anticipated. So, uh, you know, I, I know I have a colleague of mine who's uh, head of a department of plastic surgery in the Midwest who was telling me that his department went from zero telehealth visits to almost a thousand in two months. Mm. Um, and even though it was a forced adaptation, it was something that everyone learned and, and got, got on that learning curve quickly. But the remarkable thing was that no-shows and cancellations dropped dramatically and that the no-show rate almost went away. And so if we think about how we deliver healthcare today, uh, you know, in terms of clinical care on a day-to-day basis, oftentimes clinicians overbook their schedule by anywhere between 20 to 40% because they're factoring in that people are going to no-show or they're going to cancel at the last minute. And that has largely gone away in this era of telehealth, which I think is really remarkable. But, But what I find really intriguing about that is in, in the world of bariatric surgery, where I do a lot of my work, we often interpreted people no-showing to their preoperative consultations as their way of saying that, or maybe they weren't as committed to bariatric surgery as we thought they were. Mm-hmm. And now what this has reminded us is that, that people no-showing and canceling isn't a, a commitment issue. It's a reminder of how challenging getting to and from medical appointments can be for some individuals. It's not just the time in the clinic, it's the time getting to and from the clinic, it's the the lost wages, it's the payment of parking fees and public transportation and childcare. And that that showing up for a medical visit is far more complicated than I think many of us often appreciated on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, no, that's, I, I never thought about that. That's a, that's a great point. I mean, do, can you speculate at all on, you know, the anxiety component, right? This idea of maybe possibly telehealth is almost like, you know, people feel anxious about, about these, about these issues and, and the telehealth maybe sort of eases that a bit. Well, I, I think it absolutely does. And, and um, again, from a mental health perspective, um, I've had colleagues who have said that, you know, we may stay at a telehealth model until the pandemic is well behind us because, you know, much like your discipline, the provision of psychotherapy is oftentimes a one-on-one visit in a Mm -hmm. small consultation room, which currently would mandate the use of masks. And we're seeing more and more evidence that says prolonged exposure near somebody who's infectious, uh, meaning longer than 15 minutes, increases the risk of exposure for somebody else. So sitting in a a small room with somebody for an hour, even if you're masked, is is not a particularly good idea right now, unless you're convinced and you know that you're both COVID negative. So many people, and then also, um, you know, if we're wearing masks, our ability to interpret the nonverbal cues of the lower face is really going to be compromised. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure you'll, you'll appreciate this example. You know, if I give a, a big wide grin and my eyes smile and crinkle, you can see that. Mm-hmm. But if I smile subtly or I smile sarcastically, that smaller smile, you're not going to be able to interpret what it really is if it's hidden behind a mask. And so 
I think for a lot of the delivery of care, while we're so trained to want to be in the room with people and be close to them, I think for a while, particularly with mental health services, we're likely going to see that delivery via telehealth. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great point. It, it, there are elements of it that, yeah, really sort of like forced it to accelerate a lot more rapidly than people were ready for. But I think that are good things. What you just mentioned, what you were just talking about masks, it, it sort of, when I was going through your work, it, it, it raised this question about a recent paper that you had. Well, two questions. First is just a pure hypothetical that, that sort of just came to me as you were talking. I am curious what you might think uh, about how dogs re recognize their owners when they're wearing masks. masks. Do you have any thought? I mean, you haven't done any research on it, but I was just because <laughs> all you know, it's I, you know, I, I we we got our first family dog uh, a little over six years ago. Yeah, and he has brought us so much joy and so much comfort over the last several months uh, while we've been home. And I, I shudder to think how lost he's going to be once I start coming back to the office on a consistent the same way. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've come to learn that I think dogs really recognize us as much by scent as they, as they do visually. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I think, I think my phone has a harder time recognizing yeah, me when I have yeah, a yeah. mask on, <laughs> when I can't use the face ID feature, uh, than my dog. You know, I, I have noticed though, that when I'm out walking him, if we've seen somebody, particularly when it's colder and not only they're wearing a mask, but they might be wearing a hat, he does seem to be a little bit more cautious yeah, uh, about yeah, going yeah. up to a stranger. So uh -huh. maybe he is sensing something. Uh-huh. I, yeah, I wondered that. Okay. And then, so that, that's actually a legitimate question, but my real question for you is about your recent paper on attractiveness and, and mask wearing. And it was, it was different. It was sort of a counterintuitive finding to what I would have thought. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I, and, and first of all, I agree with you. It was a counterintuitive finding for, for me as well. So, so prior to coming over to the college, I, I was across town at the University of Pennsylvania and I was very fortunate for 20 years to work at a, what's known as the Center for Human Appearance, which is a collection of uh, multidisciplinary professionals who work on appearance-related issues, both cosmetic and reconstructive. Mm -hmm. And that ranges from children born with craniofacial conditions to people who acquire facial trauma from an accident or, or facial cancers to people who are interested in, in cosmetic procedures to improve their appearance. And uh, I, was, I led a program of research looking at the psychological aspects of these procedures. And uh, one of my former colleagues, Dr. Scott Bartlett, along with one of his residents, uh, were very interested in this idea of looking at how do we perceive appearance in an era where so many of us are wearing masks? Mm -hmm. And so we were able to grab pictures from a, a publicly available database out of Chicago, and we superimposed surgical masks on them. Mm -hmm. And then we put the, the pictures of these individuals, both with and without masks, on a platform called Amazon Mechanical Turk, which is really a phenomenal way to do survey-based research on, at a population level in a very short period of time. So you, you put your study up, people earn small amounts of Amazon credits for doing it. And, and you wake up the next morning and you, you have a, you know, hundreds of people have responded to your study. And what we found, and again, it was surprising to me too, is that people when they're wearing masks are actually rated as more attractive. Um, you would think that obscuring some of those facial cues might lead to that confusion you were talking about when we were talking about with our dogs, but it actually seems like 
for what's for some reason we find people more attractive. And what we believe is going on there is that masks are obscuring any asymmetrical parts of the mid and lower mm. face. Because mm -hmm. one of the cues that, that we use to determine an attractiveness of another individual is symmetry across the midline of the face. Mm -hmm. And there's a number of studies that have shown that, you know, the more symmetrical we are, the more attractive people, people perceive us to be. And it may just be that what the, these masks are hiding those asymmetrical features uh, of the lower face. That makes sense, right? Yeah, so I was thinking it was a lot of it was symmetry. And I liked in the paper that you were really talking about harmony of features rather than like, it's not just straight symmetry, but really like the ratio of how these, you know, so eye, eye distance and, and things like that. Yeah, no, it's good. I was thinking of some of the, some of the work that we do uh, with masks uh, in uh, hearing, right? So one of the big problems with wearing masks uh, for people with hearing loss is that they really need to extract as many cues as they can from looking at someone's mouth as they're talking. And so there have been these efforts, uh, you know, at coming up with uh, semi-transparent masks and, you know, with, with plastic covers. But the, so far, I don't know that the success rate's been high because they fog up um, and it sort of de uh, defeats the purpose. So, uh, so it's interesting, you know, it's, it's, it's a new world with the, with, with the masks. But I'll ask another sort of like, speculation question i when i was reading that i was curious like in terms of like cultures like a lot of mask wearing is really you know unique to our culture because it was imposed on us but what what do you think again speculatively totally hypothetical but cultures where uh mass you know face coverings are are a part of their culture and have historically been implemented right do you do, has there been cross-cultural research on attractiveness ratings of sort of like when you only can see someone's eyes no, and as a matter of fact, I think that was one of the, the novel aspects of this work is that um, we, we took advantage of the opportunity of, um, of this change in our culture and the, you know, the adaptations yeah. that we've had to make in response to COVID. And, and while there's definitely been work that's been done around the world looking at um, perceptions of facial attractiveness, my, my read of the literature is that it's been harder to do those studies in countries where mask wearing, particularly among women in public is much more commonplace, that there right. seems to be much more of a concern that, um, you know, this, this is kind of exactly, you know, it, it, trying to think of, of the way to explain this, mm -hmm. but, you know, this is exactly the kinds of, of um, objectification of women and um, judging people based on their appearance that those cultures truly frown upon. Yeah. And so I think to try to get into those cultures and do that work yeah. um, would be very challenging. Yet at the same time, I, you know, as we're talking about this, I'm, I'm thinking about, I believe it's one of the most famous covers of National Geographic from 20 or 30 years ago, where they have a, a, a picture of a woman in a Middle Eastern country and I believe all you see are her eyes behind a mask or a veil. Mm -hmm. and, and people have talked about it as one of, one of the most iconic images that they've ever seen on the cover of, of National Geographic. Um, hoping I'm getting the details right on this now. But, um, but I, I do think that there are opportunities to look at these issues more uh, from a cross-cultural perspective. You know, one of the things that in the appearance literature that's definitely been observed over the last several decades is how our, um, you know, when I started working in this area, there was still such a dominance of um, 
Caucasian European icons and ideals of beauty that, Mm -hmm. you know, our standards of beauty, particularly female beauty, were based on this white, you know, very kind of Eastern European facial Mm -hmm. features look. And yet there's studies that show that even if we just look at magazine covers, uh, media icons, and so, you know, the ratings of the most beautiful women in the world, we're seeing far more diversity and, and far more appreciation that beauty is just not a white woman who looks like, like she comes from Eastern Europe mm-hmm. um, icon anymore. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. And so just one last question on this study. What, what, so you, oh, and you had both males and females, right? So an equal number. And we then, did. And then were your, were your raiders also uh, male team? Was there any sort of interaction between rating the like the, the, the sex of the person rating versus the, versus the sex of the person they were, do you know what I mean? I'm not, I don't know if I'm making sense here. No, they weren't, those findings weren't as robust as we would have anticipated, but okay. what was really interesting was it does seem like for people who were, the, that the greatest improvements in ratings of attractiveness came from the people who were rated least attractive without a mask. And again, it probably gets to that issue of symmetry and harmony of the facial of the lower facial features, which unfortunately we didn't measure those in this study. But now that I think about it, it would be a great follow-up study. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the other thing I couldn't help but think about as we did this study, Jamie, was you know your work with eye tracking, and to think about wouldn't it be fascinating to take some of these pictures with and without masks, and to do some eye tracking studies to see what it is that people are looking at. Yeah, um, but be... but it does seem like, as, as I was saying, the greatest improvements were among those individuals, both male and female, but the effect was stronger for the females uh, who were seen as less attractive without the mask. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, it's a it's a neat study. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, the last thing I would really add about this, which we didn't study because we use surgical masks, is clearly we are seeing a, a growing number of masks being used as fashion statements. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all the, all the you, know, um, you know, fashion houses and, and all of the clothing retailers now have their own masks. Um, I actually purchased two masks uh, by a small uh, clothing retailer in North Philadelphia called Armstrong and Wilson back in the spring that were custom made and mm-hmm. look fantastic. And they come with a matching pocket square. And, oh, cool. um, <laughs> in, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so, you know, and I think we're seeing more and more of that. So as we're, as we're, the longer we're wearing masks, I think more and more people are now actually seeing them as a way to really express themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I think that's fascinating also. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, so I'm going to pivot us briefly to your other research in obesity. And one thing I wanted to talk about is one of the articles, some of the, some of the overview, recent paper that you did on basically an overview on bariatric surgery. And there was a, so much I learned from that that I had no idea about. And so one of the first questions I had was, you know, really, because I had so many misconceptions about that and learning from this, but what are, what are other people's common misconceptions about bariatric surgery? Well, I, I think there's a couple right off the bat, one of which is people, I, I think, don't appreciate that the minimum criteria for bariatric surgery is being roughly 100 pounds above your recommended body weight mm-hmm. or 
being somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 pounds above your recommended body weight in the presence of a major comorbidity like diabetes or hypertension. Mm -hmm. and, and so just to put that kind of in, in kind of day-to-day -day terms, somebody who is 5'10", their recommended body weight, if we start looking at BMIs and, and what's, a, what's considered to be a healthy and normal BMI, is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood between 150 and about 180 pounds. That means that as soon as that individual who's 5'10", regardless of whether they're male or female, as soon as they cross over 250 pounds, um, they are potentially a candidate for bariatric surgery. So, and, and we know that approximately 8 to 10% of the American population is a viable candidate for bariatric surgery just based on that criteria alone. So we're talking about tens of millions of Americans. And yet, I think the perception in the lay public is that the people who end up undergoing bariatric surgery are the people who, you know, it's, it's like the show on cable TV, My 600 Pound Life. Right. You, you have to be super, super, have super severe obesity, mm. hundreds of pounds over your recommended body weight in order to be eligible for surgery. But in fact, what I can offer to you is that the vast majority of the patients that we see probably weigh between 275 to 325 pounds. Mm -hmm. And so if you walk down a city street in Philadelphia, you go to a large shopping mall, you're going to see a number of individuals in that weight category who probably don't appreciate that they're meet the weight criteria for surgery. And I mm -hmm. think what's really important here too, is that bariatric surgery without question, and based on the evidence at hand, is not only the strongest, but the most durable treatment that we have for weight loss right now, that it produces weight losses up to of about one third of initial body weight. And also that those weight losses are largely sustained at least through the first decade of the, of the post-operative period. Mm -hmm. So if the average patient who comes in weighs 300 pounds uh, and is, is 44 years old, which is the, you know, what we see repeatedly in our studies, Within a year or two after surgery, that person is down to around 200 pounds and is likely going to stay around 200 pounds into their mid to late 50s. Also, all of those health problems, that diabetes, that hypertension, for the majority of patients, those disorders go into remission. So it is an incredibly powerful treatment, but one that's profoundly underutilized. So that, you know, gets to one of my own uh, misconceptions about it. So one thing I wondered was this trade-off between, you know, the all sorts of benefits that you can get in terms of, you know, diabetes and, and everything else and heart disease versus, you know, morbidity and mortality from the surgery itself, right? So you're moving around a lot of anatomy. And my sort of back of my head was there, there is a fair bit of risk in actually having the surgery, but is that, is that wrong or, or, you know, sort of like, are the benefits outweighed by, are the risks outweighed weighed by the benefits? So, so the risks are certainly um, outweighed by the benefits. The, in, in high volume centers, which would be most, you know, academic medical centers, university-based hospitals, or large, even I would say suburban community-based hospitals with established programs. And I would say those are programs that are doing, you know, a couple hundred of these procedures a year. Um, the, the risk of death is actually about equivalent to having your appendix out or your gallbladder removed. Oh, wow. So the risk of death is actually very, very low. And, and there does seem to be a relationship between it's even lower in those high volume centers with a great deal of experience 
compared to the lower volume centers that maybe are just learning how to do this. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, there's been a, num a, a number of studies that have shown that not only do, do we see the um, improvements in health and quality of life um, that um, kind of erase the upfront costs and risks of surgery, usually within about three to five years, but there's some evidence that also suggests it's associated with cost savings for the insurance companies. Mm -hmm. So for example, if we think about somebody with type two diabetes, who's on multiple medications to control the disease and to control their blood sugar, that's going to cost the individual and the insurance company thousands of dollars a year. Mm -hmm. Bariatric surgery typically costs anywhere between $15,000 and $25,000 when you consider all of the assessments and everything that goes on, on in surgical care on the day of surgery. Mm -hmm. Most insurance plans do pay for that. But if that individual who has surgery, and even if the company pays $20,000 to, to, you know, to, to have that person have surgery, um, the, the reduction in medication costs, um, the reduction in the number of visits to physicians in the next three to five years essentially neutralizes those upfront costs of surgery. So, mm -hmm. so you try to make an argument to insurers that this is actually a cost saver to them over time. Yeah, no, that's great. How how hard do you have to push the insurance? So one, you know, one of the things about a lot of our healthcare system is it's not super proactive, right? In terms of weighing the risk, basically this is going to pay off in ten years. People are going to be a lot healthier and ultimately this is going to produce cost savings for you. So how hard do you have to, you know, do clinicians have to advocate for this? In, in so, yeah, so, so that's a, a fantastic question because as a psychologist who's worked with these teams for over 20 years, it's been fascinating to watch the evolution of this process. So mm -hmm. in the early days, going back to, you know, the early 2000s, many insurance companies wouldn't pay for this at all. In response to that, the bariatric surgery world created what's called a center of excellence program, where they began to certify their own programs to say, yes, we believe that these centers deliver high quality care with minimal risks and likely great, you know, patient-centered care, mm -hmm. which I think has been, you know, was, was really a, a very wise thing to do because the insurance companies then started to follow that. And then they said, okay, well, you, patient X, can go have surgery, but you need to go to a center of excellence. So, and now we're in an era where most insurance plans do cover it, but they also ask patients to do all sorts of things for about six months prior to surgery, all sorts of preoperative assessments. Mm -hmm. Patients typically have to come back to the, the bariatric program about eight to 10 times, which gets back to that issue we were talking about with telehealth of the burden of coming back for repeated visits and the lost time at work and the money that goes to parking and childcare, mm -hmm. it becomes a slog. And, and what's also happened during that time is the insurance companies have said, we're going to look, we're going to make it hard from you in a different perspective. We're going to hold your feet to the fire to say, prove to us through, through high quality research that the surgery is safe, which the mm -hmm. field has done. Prove to us that there is a return on reduction in healthcare costs, which the field has done. Now it's proved to us that there are cost savings involved. Mm -hmm. That gets a little bit trickier. So there really has been this ongoing chess match between the bariatric surgery community and the insurance companies who, to be honest, I think are deathly afraid that if more and more people have surgery, 
this is going to you know jeopardize their bottom lines and so from their perspective they try to make sure that the floodgates do not open and we don't see more much more than that 250,000 Americans a year who are having surgery right now mm -hmm. no that that's a, that's a great point um you know, I just recall that being one of the most annoying things of really doing patient care was having to, patient care was great I really enjoyed you know, meeting with people, talking with people, but it was the extra stuff that getting, you know, begging insurance companies to provide these extra services and equipment that people needed that was you know, lots of hours on the phone outside of patient care that, uh, you know, I think is, is, is pretty tough. Well, and I, I, I can't agree with you more. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, I remain licensed clinically in large part because I supervise people who see patients, but I don't, I'm not seeing patients right now, but you know, that's a part of, of your job as a clinician that I think very few of us relish and, and often becomes so very frustrating and so very disheartening because, you know, we, we go into the healthcare professions, regardless of the discipline, because we want to help people. And we don't and and we but and but when we think about helping people, we want to we want to help that person who's across from us in a consultation room. Mm -hmm. We don't want to have to go toe to toe with a bureaucrat from an insurance company to fight about this, that, and the other. You know, we don't get that training in graduate school. Yeah, I know. And, and so, um, you know, it's it's um, and, and it's and it is heartbreaking, and and it's we see this issue actually in obesity care more generally. Mm -hmm. Because even though uh, Medicare and Medicaid has now uh, made a decision as of several years ago to provide some degree of reimbursement to behavioral counseling provided by physicians for non-surgical weight control, my understanding is that, that for many practitioners, they just don't offer it because they, they're, they're having to spend way too much time on the phone with yeah. the insurance companies negotiating for this, that, and the other um, and then the reimbursement rates are pitiful. Yeah. And as a result, uh, a lot of physicians are just saying this, this isn't the best use of my time. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result, obesity in general is undertreated by the medical community. Yeah. Do you, do you think then, I guess the extension of that is, do you think we have a responsibility to sort of, when we're training new clinic, new clinical psychologists, new speech pathologists, physical therapists, to tell them really what, you know, really what their workday is going to be like, right? You're going to have these expectations for billing, you're going to have these, you're going to be on the phone a lot with insurance companies, you know, wrangling and begging very, because I really don't know that we do that very well. You know, we do teach the, the anatomy and we teach the psychology and counseling, but you know, the reality of the on the ground, boots on the ground kind of experience might be a little bit different. No, I, I, I agree with you. And I, I, you know, I, I think I'm thinking back of my own training and I suspect that we, we all as graduate students and, and on fellowships, we kind of observe this and we observe our mentors and our supervisors struggling with these issues, mm -hmm. but because we're often not tasked with doing it, we don't necessarily appreciate how demanding it is. And yeah, I, I'm thinking back to one of my graduate school mentors who famously towards the end of my time in graduate school told me, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to know the first thing about being an effective psychologist until you're actually being one. Uh -huh. And, you know, when you hear this as a graduate student, it really takes, it takes the air out of your balloon for a moment because, yeah. you know, you're thinking, hey, you know, I've been in the program three or four years. I kind of, you know, I'm kind of understanding this. Mm -hmm. And then you have your mentor who you trust and respect and value, which I certainly did say, you're not going to learn the first thing about being a psychologist until you start doing it. And I got to tell you, 
he was more or less right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, you think you're going to be, you know, all into Freud to get your couch and, you know, tell me about your mother. And really, it's <laughs> Blue Cross Blue Shield on hold. Well, um, but, but, and I think, but I think it also speaks to this larger issue of, you know, practice management and, yeah. you know, being a professional. And mm -hmm. what does it mean to be a physical therapist or a recreational mm -hmm. therapist or a social worker above and beyond just the, 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 the logistics of being in that consultation room for a half. Yeah. yeah. All right, I have one last question for you. And so this is a question that actually integrates across your two, the two worlds that you span, uh, which are really not all that different in sort of plastic surgery and obesity management um, would be, you know, this idea when people have gastric bypass surgery or weight loss surgery and their bodies change so much and they have, you know, they just, they change radically. And so quickly you said, mentioned, you know, hundred pounds in a year, they just look different. They look at different people They manage their, you know, excess skin. How can we talk about, you can talk a little bit about how those two worlds sort of converge. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a great question. And, and I say that because I've, I've actually addressed this sometimes where, you know, I'll, I'll go give a, a talk to a plastic surgery audience and yet they see my titles as director of an obesity center. And, and I can see kind of the faces in the audience of why is this obesity guy giving a talk about mask wearing and facial attractiveness? And I've yeah. seen the opposite where, you know, people, people are expecting me to um, talk about one thing and, and I'm introduced a different way. And one, I, I love that part of my work because I do get to bounce between those two worlds. But the common thread, I really think is body image. Mm -hmm. It's this idea of what is the importance and the relevance of our physical appearance in our day-to-day -day lives. We, we know that for some people, it's a substantial part of their self-esteem, in some cases up to one-third of people's self-esteem. We know how we feel about our physical appearance is an important part of our quality of life. You know, we have all of these great sayings like, you can't judge a book by its cover, and reminding us that it's not important. And yet we have this very robust body of social psychological research that tells us that whether we like to admit it or not, our appearance does matter. Mm -hmm. That we judge each other based on our appearance. We assume people who are more attractive have more desirable interpersonal, interpersonal characteristics. And we also know that across the lifespan that people who are seen as more attractive receive preferential treatment uh, pretty much in day-to-day -day life in all of its different forms. And so while we would like to think that in a more perfect world where we accepted people for who they are and what, what they look like, the reality is what we look like does play an important world, part of how we interact with the world. So whether we're talking about somebody who's uh, born with a disfiguring condition at birth, who is therefore stigmatized because they look different, or we're talking about somebody who's profound, has a severe degree of obesity and is similarly stigmatized when out and about in the world, there actually are in, in many cases, many more commonalities between those two individuals mm -hmm. than dissimilarities. And, mm -hmm. and it's actually one of the parts of, of, of my career and, and that I'm, I'm, you know, really when I think about where my career has gone and where I think it's going to go, really makes me smile that, I, mm -hmm. that I'm able to, to really look, you know, kind of find this common thread between these two divergent areas. And, and it, 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 it just, it, it keeps me very much kind of engaged and energized and excited about where that those areas can go going forward.
Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's absolutely fascinating. I think the interdisciplinary part is fascinating. The integrating systems part is fascinating. It's just very cool. And that's about all the time we have. So I just want to thank you, uh, David, for, uh, for taking the time today. I learned a lot. And uh, again, thanks for this is the inaugural edition of Common Talk. Signing off, Jamie Riley, and we'll see you next time. You have been listening to Common Voice, a podcast of the College of Public Health of Temple University. If you are interested in learning more about our academic programs and scholarship, or providing financial support to Common Voice, our programs, or students, please visit us at www.cph.temple.edu.